Good morning, church. It's a joy to get to be back at Fellowship. I have a big investment in this church, a daughter and two grandchildren, and a son-in-law who hangs around with them. I, I don't claim anybody is in-law. We're, we're family. We're family, and in Christ, family with you. It's an honor to get to be back, and especially in the middle of this Abraham series. Now, I'm not going to take an Abraham text and and do a segment of that. I'm going to step back and give you a broader excursus on faith. And as we talk about faith and the nature of faith, how faith functions, how our culture views faith, and what our response as believers needs to be to the culture, a respectful, compassionate, loving, but competent response, competent response. You'll think of Abraham. I'll reference Abraham a time or two, but we're not going to live in an Abraham text. We're going to live, we're going to live in the world of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. I want to unpack that short little statement for you in a way that I hope will be genuinely meaningful. Walk is constantly in Scripture uh, a a dominant metaphor for the way you do your life. To walk by faith, to walk by sight, is to choose a different orientation for, a different methodology for doing life. Christians are people, Paul says, who've chosen to walk not by sight, but by faith. Not by what we can figure out through the five senses in the world that we can generate of knowledge and insight, and that's considerable. But we walk in a larger sphere that while not discounting anything that we can know through the senses and the mind, the reason God has given, that's made us in his image, in his likeness. But we then have an enlarged sphere called faith. Martin Luther used to call faith the sixth sense. Undergirded by, you are led to the sixth sense by the credibility of the five God has given you. But by faith, you are open to a world that only God can reveal. You hear some weird things about faith in our day and in the time of a culture of unbelief. There is this group of people, we we call them collectively, they call themselves the New Atheists, the the Derrits and the Dawkins and the Hitches, and Sam Harris, for example, is in that group. In his book, The End of Faith, this is what Harris says about faith. Religious faith is simply unjustified belief in matters of ultimate concern. According to Harris, what what we did this morning was basically covenant, implicitly at least, that when we walk into the doors of a church and to worship, we're parking our brains out there. We come in here with brains disengaged to do faith. I resent that. That's just false. Now the pity is some Christians, some Christian teachers even, have allowed that view of faith to be accepted, that that faith doesn't have to answer itself. Faith doesn't have to defend itself. Faith doesn't have to articulate itself meaningfully in the world outside the doors of church buildings. And they play into Harris's hands. The late Christopher Hitchens, probably one of the most articulate, one of the most engaging of the new atheist crowd. In his book, God is Not Great, 
Faith is the surrender of the mind. It's the surrender of reason. Close quote. There are those angry atheists among the new atheists who would say something like faith is the source of all the bigotry and the violence and the superstition and oppression that goes on in the world. I don't have a very hard time answering Harris and Derrett and Hitchens at an intellectual level because the new atheists have no new arguments. The arguments are old. They've been responded to very effectively many times in the past. But I have a harder time answering this one about the bigotry and the superstition that are preserved in the name of religion. Some religions are, in fact, built on ignorance and superstition. And some fundamentalist versions of religion not only provoke fights within families and divide the body of Christ, they produce wars. And yes, I think about radical Muslims and flying planes into towers and and beheading Christians. But church, let's be honest, I think about the Ku Klux Klan in the South. And I think about the violence perpetrated with what symbol? A blazing cross. You talk about the prostitution of a symbol. I deny that Christianity is the source of violence and superstition and bigotry. Christianity is big-hearted. Christianity is about grace. In church, we sometimes forget that with one another. We have a position intellectually that we can be broad-minded. We don't have to be insecure and pugnacious with our faith. We can entertain any idea because the Christian faith is fully adequate to the tearing down of any false strongholds, Paul says, of things that would undermine confidence in who Christ is. We can't be people who react in knee-jerk anger. And we can't give credence to the notion of being bigots. Why all that confusion? Well, in the 18th century, philosophers drove a wedge between faith and knowledge, and theologians let them get by with it. Faith was given to the church. That can be your domain, church. You can have faith. We'll take knowledge, and knowledge going forward will be altogether secular. There was no such distinction ever made historically until the 18th century. Faith and knowledge were never viewed as different spheres. Knowledge, historically, biblically, allows faith, generates faith. By what we can know by sight, we know. I'll cite Paul from Romans 1, talking about the pagans. Romans 1 verse 20, he says, From the time of creation, the things that are seen have allowed us to understand things about the nature of the invisible God we haven't seen. And then look at how strong His language is. Ever since the creation of the world, His eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things He has made. So that unbelievers are without excuse. So that though they didn't 
know God or honor God, they're without excuse. Paul, what are you saying? He said, by sight. By the things we can know through the senses. We know that this invisible God, eternal. We even know a great deal about His divine nature. And he said, and that opens up to us the world of faith. We talk about natural revelation. God's revealing himself in nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Paul, through the things that are made, we see and understand. Matter is not self-generating and self-creative. We're without excuse if from what we know by sight, we do not understand that This is the work of God. But once we accept that much, God then is able on that path of faith to show us what the senses can't discover. That's not unique to religion. 90% of everything you know, you know by faith, not by sight. How much do you know by personal, direct investigation, observation? You don't know anything of history by sight. You don't know that Abraham Lincoln was... President of the United States during the Civil War. You don't know that Caesar crossed the Rubicon. You don't know that Socrates lived. You don't know that Plato wrote all those plays. You weren't there. You didn't see it. You don't know that by sight. Historical studies have canons and rubrics that hold it accountable. Christian faith, part of the beauty of the Christian faith is it's in historical faith. Have you ever thought about it? Christianity doesn't, like the Greek religions, talk about gods who live on an invisible Mount Olympus and do things that are bizarre, but you just have to trust them anyway. Yeah, they rape each other's wives and eat each other's children, but they are gods. Plato was bothered by that. He said, that's just really stupid if you think about it. He said, our children won't grow up to be better than the gods we're teaching them to worship. Ouch. And we think about some of the music and the pop culture that, well... Sight leads you to faith. Faith then becomes your eyes for what you could not have found by your own lights. Descartes and Kant and their heirs were happy to let Christians believe whatever we wish. Call it your faith. Call it your opinion. Just don't make any public claims about life and especially don't say anything about morality. But faith was never intended to function except in the arena of what we can know and articulate and defend as public truth. Christian faith is not a private opinion. It is the public truth of the God who has created all things and made himself known through his creation. But if you accept that wedge between faith and knowledge, you create a relativistic culture. And folks... That's where you and I are living. In a relativistic culture, a woman born to Caucasian parents can be so concerned about racism that she can declare herself African-American. Because after all, race and ethnicity are social constructs. They're not real. Really? Relativism allows that. In the world of relativism, white can be black and Bruce can be Caitlin. And treason can be patriotism, and homosexuality can be marriage, and unbelief can be Christianity. But that's only in a world of relativism, in a world where truth means anything, none of those things mean anything at all. Right and wrong, truth and error, are real categories. 
And faith is designed to help us distinguish the two so that like Abraham, we walk not by sight, not by just what we can figure out, but by that much larger body of information we need about what true meaning is and what reality is and what morality is. And that there are these real constructs of gender and race and ethnicity. And that there's only one place where there will be unity for all those things, and that's in Christ, not by declaring them social constructs and wiping them away. But by learning to love God enough that we spill over in that love for the way we treat each other. Wouldn't you like to start a course where you're given the final exam question on the first day you meet for class. And by the way, not just the question but the answer. That's sort of the way it is with Christianity. Here's our final exam. What are the two great things around which you built your life? Now, here's the correct answer. It's not the true answer some of us could give. I have loved God with all my heart and soul, mind, and strength. And because I love God, the God I've never seen, I have loved God as His image is born to me by men and women that He has created. And as I have tried to bear God's image to them, to love them. There's some better things about faith that you hear from people like maybe Thomas Aquinas, the great Catholic theologian. Faith is an act of the intellect as it assents to divine truth. Or Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, mathematician. Faith certainly tells us what the senses don't know, but not the contrary of what they know. It is above, not against them. I like that. Christian faith is not anti-rational. It is not irrational. It's supra-rational. It is, it is above and beyond what mere unaided human reason could know. Natural theology, the heavens declare the glory of God. Revealed theology. Special theology. Emmanuel. God in our midst giving us a clear word. Not just a word articulated but a word enfleshed. And so when Jesus comes, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and He was with the deity, and He was a full-fledged member of the Trinitarian deity. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, we had words from God. But you know what we use the words for? The words out of Torah to fight over, to split hairs around the words, and to divvy ourselves up. I'm talking about Judaism now, okay? I'm talking about the Torah and the Ten Commandments, the things that came through Moses. And some of the time Jesus gets here, you have Second Temple Judaism that doesn't look a lot like Torah. It looks like Sadducees warring against Pharisees and Pharisees discounting the Herodians and the Herodians scoffing at the Essenes and the Essenes with... Sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
Christ comes and establishes his church, and so we become Nazarenes and Baptists and Church of Christ and community churches. And We are called to be the kingdom of God, people. We are called to be one church, speaking with one voice to the authenticity of this Christian faith. And we're given lots of flexibility and freedom because of grace that we may worship in our different tribal units. We can't afford to see each other as the enemy. The enemy is Satan. And the people who are in the clutches of Satan are not your enemies. I have to be very careful. When I talk, for example, about homosexuality or a Bruce Caitlin transgendering. What I know to be right and wrong based on the word of God does not allow me to mistreat anyone who is at this moment in a lifestyle of homosexuality or transgendered existence. They, in fact, need special respect, special love from Christians, not endorsement, not approval. I'm a parent. I have three perfect children. Well, nearly. But here's what I found out on one of the days when maybe one of the children, certainly not the daughter who might be in the room, was less than perfect. What they didn't need was to be kneecapped. What they didn't need was to be insulted. What they didn't need was to be hurt. They needed a little extra love on those days. Church, we have to learn that about people who are not walking by faith, who are still walking by sight, but who have an image of us. That because you Christians believe your faith gives you knowledge of the will of God, you have the right to be disrespectful to those of us who aren't where you are. In fact, we have the obligation to love them. John Calvin said, it would be the height of absurdity to label ignorance tempered by humility, faith. You go, John. And sometimes the world dismisses Christian faith because we wrap ignorance and bigotry and parade it as faith. And so to a person in this room who isn't a believer... I guess I'm more concerned that you hear me right now than the strongest Christian in the room. You're not my enemy because you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You are not my enemy because you have not accepted him as Savior. You are not my enemy because you are not trying to live your life by his revelation and by his norms. You're a human being in the image of God. You bear the image of God because he created you in his likeness. And I believe certain things are right and wrong, not because my opinion is different from your opinion, but because I've chosen on the basis of reason, on the basis of what God has revealed about himself, to accept a word from God that defines for me what's true, what's false what's right, what's wrong. 
But because I believe that, I will not be disrespectful to you. Hebrews 11.1 is the definitive word on faith out of Scripture. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Strong words in the original text. They're lawyer words, actually. They're words that describe the kind of case a lawyer wanted to take into court on any given day because he knew he had the goods and there was no way he could lose this argument because he had the facts. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. How can we be sure of what we haven't seen? A sure word from God. A word true made flesh and vouchsafed to us in Scripture. Testable because Christian faith plays out across time and space in human history. It is being sure of what we haven't seen. Let me give you a metaphor for faith that, that works for me and it just might for you. Do any of you know the name Eric Weyenmeyer? Probably not. Eric Weyenmeyer is a world-class athlete. And I think he illustrates Paul's statement about what it is to walk by faith, not by sight. You're going to see Eric's picture coming up on the screen. Eric was not the first person to climb Mount Everest, but he was the first blind person to climb it. In 2001, when he was 32 years old, this man who knew because he had a congenital disease that he would be going blind at about the age of 12 or 13, and in fact, he lost complete sight at age 13. He still wanted to live a full life, a rich life. His parents had the wherewithal and the compassion and love for him that they tried to prepare him for the loss of his sight and for the experience of life yet to be. He loved climbing. And he climbed the six great summits, and only Everest, the, the, the greatest of the summits, remained. And so he formed a team of 19 people and trained and began the assault on Everest. And he became the blind climber of Mount Everest. And here's the way the climbing went. At the lower elevations, as they started, a bell was on the backpack of the person immediately in front of Eric. Other people at distances around him. And Eric walked blind by following the sound of the bell. And as they got up into higher elevations... Now, because of the whistling of the wind, because the oxygen is thin, you have to put on oxygen masks to climb. You can't follow the sound of a bell. You get up to camp station two and three. They attach throat-monitored mics. And those mics pick up the sound and transmit it to Eric's ears. And if you go to the next picture, Eric begins to climb... And they say, stop, Eric. We're coming up against a crevasse. It's about X feet wide. This one, this one you can cross, but, but forward, forward just an inch or two, far. Stop. Reach your poles across till you find Eric. 
And then they got to some of those really wide ones. Go to the next picture and you see one of the devastating crevasses. A couple of thousand feet deep. Looks like an an aluminum extension ladder set across it. His team sets it and now Eric has to cross it. Eric? Eric, uh, right, 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 stop, stop, Eric, take the rope, Eric, one step, step. Eric said, I was scared to death during that climb. He said, I started to turn back several times. Just as they were about to reach the first of the four stations you reach in the climb, Eric slipped, and when he slipped, his pole hit him against the face. And he gashed his face and he said, I thought, and some of the people in the group wondered, should I keep going? Eric reached the top of the mountain. I think that's a metaphor for faith. Here's why. Spiritually, I'm not only blind, I'm dead. I'm dead in my sin. And because I'm dead in sin, if I'm going to be able to walk, if I'm going to be able to, to, to get through, it won't be by sight. It will have to be the way Eric was by trusting some people around him and moving in a direction not by what he could see, but by the people he trusted. Ultimately, that's what faith becomes in the life of a Christian. Yes, faith is an intellectual assurance that there is a true word from God, both in the flesh and in Scripture. And because I'm blind and can't find my own way, my life will be a response to that call and that word from God. That's what it was for Abraham. The biblical text says that when God called Abraham, he called him in his unbelief. Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees worshiping what? Snakes and frogs, trees, stars. But God shone the light of his presence. Yahweh addressed Abraham. Yahweh established trust in Abraham that there was something other than the creation to be worshipped. And there was a notion of God other than statues that could be made. Idolatry. Paul later is going to visit a place where they even put up pedestals to unknown gods. They don't want to miss any. They might offend them. And Paul said to them what somehow Yahweh communicated to Abraham. I want to tell you about the God you don't know. Enough trust was established between Yahweh and Abraham that when Yahweh says Abraham, and faith is always tested. Abraham, you have a comfortable life here in Ur. You're established, you're respected, you're wealthy. I want you to leave it behind you. I want you to pack up, move in the direction that I'll mark for you along the way. You've never been there. I'll let you know when you arrive. Faith is saying yes to God's call. Not a leap in the dark, not, not blind faith as in 
Can you imagine an Eric Weyenheimer? You know, I think I want to climb Everest, so I'll get me a backpack, a couple of two-liter Pepsis, and beef jerky, and off I'll go. Fool would have died within a day. We are indeed foolish to try to navigate life without a sighted guide and without a community of people who are making this journey together. That's why we're called the church. Lone Ranger faith's no good. I, I need you. We need each other. So Abraham hears the call. The call is of grace. Abraham summons the faith to respond to that call. That too is of grace. And along the way, Abraham stumbles and God picks him up. That is of grace. And he doesn't just stumble. Sometimes he falls flat on his face. Any of you women love the story of Abraham and the way he treats Sarah? That's an awful story. Repeated, not once but two times, He'll save his neck by putting her in jeopardy? Yeah. Hear this. Faith is not perfection, it's direction. Hear that for your own walk if you're a bit discouraged today. If you've heard God's call, and if you've said yes to God's call, and if you've stumbled and been discouraged, that's one thing. But let's suppose you've just had one of those monumental failures. Well, I'm toast. I'm done. Your faith is not your perfection. It's your direction. You've heard God's call. And if you're willing to hear the call, he'll still pick you up. That's grace. Jump forward, not just to Abraham, but to King David. If you've messed up as badly as King David, and it's hard to exceed him. He commits adultery. He he, he lies. He deceives. He murders. In Acts chapter 7, looking back on the history of Israel, you know what Stephen, led by the Spirit of God, says about David? David was a man after God's own heart. People, David was not a man after God's own heart by virtue of what he did in his sin. He was a man after God's own heart by virtue of the fact that when he sinned, he couldn't be proud of it. He couldn't be happy in his sin. And when he was called to account for his sin, his heart broke. And he said, oh God, I've been such a fool. Purge me, cleanse me, let me be whiter than snow. Faith knows. Faith, you see, is a means to knowledge. It's not an opinion, it's not a maybe so, wish it could be. Sight is what you can know through your five senses. Faith is what you can know on the testimony of someone who's in position to tell you the truth. And you trust that person. Jesus is in position to tell you the truth, my brother, my sister, my non-Christian friend. And faith is to hear that call from God. And as little as your faith may be at that point, pray Peter's prayer, Lord... I believe, but oh, help my unbelief. I pray that prayer fairly regularly. Faith is your direction. It's not your perfection. Faith is not a game, but it's a real follow the leader exercise. Faith is John 10. 
If you want a, a scripture to close and, and, and put the lesson together, go to John 10 with me, where Jesus has given the story of, of being the good shepherd to the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And he gets down to verse 22, and, and people have been marinating in the story and trying to figure out what that means. At that time, the festival of dedication, Hanukkah, is taking place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspenders? Oh, I'm sorry. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe because you don't belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Do you get it? This is constant language out of the mouth of Jesus in John. Jesus comes and makes these bodacious, audacious, outrageous claims. The Father and I are one. Who am I? I'm the I am who spoke to Moses a long time ago at the bush. Who am I? I'm your Messiah you've been waiting for. Why? I'm not asking you to believe that just out of the blue. Look at what I've done. My works testify. They bear witness. Reason correctly about that. You know that I'm... And so Nicodemus says what? Teacher, we know you're from God. Why? Nobody could do the works you're doing. Miracles are a test. Nobody could do the works you're doing unless God were with him, validating him, authenticating him. And so Jesus turns water to wine. He gives sight to blind eyes. A couple of chapters later, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's the clincher, folks. It's not my opinion that Jesus is different from the Buddha or Muhammad or that faith is better than unbelief. It's what I know based on the resurrection of Christ from the dead that the same power at work to raise him up from the dead is at work in the world yet today for those who would look at Jesus and see the leader that we blind, spiritually blind people need and become part of his fold. Hear my voice. Follow my steps. I'm going to the Father. Amen. Holy God, we hear you speak to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, you empower within us the ability to receive and hear and obey that word. Father, we want to walk that path that leads us into your very throne room to live with you in the new heaven and the new earth and to experience your glory and your presence forever. Help us get rid of our arrogance and pride and help us push aside the world's vocabularies to know that this journey is made by faith and not by sight, but that we are not left without witness. We have a faithful and trustworthy guide and may we walk with him through the week that you have given us and live this week to your glory and pleasure. In the name of Christ and the whole church said, Amen. Amen. Walk with him in this week. God bless you.